Hello and welcome to Love You Live, brought to you by Love Supreme Festival, a podcast which celebrates the power of live music. In this podcast, we'll be talking to extraordinary artists, not only about their life and career, but the key concerts in their life, the shows that helped shape them. We'll also be speaking to fans of our guests too, to find out the live performances they most cherish. Unlike a record, concerts only really exist in our memory, but they can be life-changing. The catalyst for a career or a creative epiphany, a memory or a symbol of a certain time in one's life, or just an unforgettable show that leaves a permanent imprint. I'm your host, Ciro Romano, founder of Love Supreme, and every week I take my guests back in time and ask them to choose the gigs they would like to relive again and why. Our guest this week is one of the most popular UK jazz artists of all time, Jamie Cullum. So what game shall we play today? How about the one where you don't get your way? Cullum commenced his career as a jazz artist, culminating in the huge success of his third album, 20-something, in 2003, making him the biggest-selling UK jazz artist of all time. He continued to develop his craft as a musician and a songwriter, refusing to be straightjacketed by the success of 20-something. And over the last 15 years, he's morphed into a classic piano-playing singer-songwriter in the mould of Ben Folds or Billy Joel. His 2019 album, Taller, demonstrated a greater sophistication, honesty and vulnerability in his songwriting part of which he credits to his wife, Sophie Dahl. He is an energetic and influential supporter of young UK and international jazz artists, finding ways to bring them to a wider audience, predominantly through his respected and long-running Radio 2 show. Cullum says, you're only famous in the eyes of others. Inside, you're still the same. And not a hundred million records or TV shows can change that. I think the only pitfall of fame is believing that it means something and behaving like that. Ooh, and I know that I don't I spoke to Jamie just after he won the prestigious Ivor Novello Award for Songwriting in 2020 for his track, Age of Anxiety. Congratulations on winning the Ivor Novello Award for Age of Anxiety. So for anybody listening who doesn't know what that is, it's really the pinnacle of songwriting acclaim. And I want to ask you how it felt to win something so prestigious. Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a surprise, first of all. Um, the nicest kind of surprise. Anyone who says that um, it doesn't mean anything to win awards is not... <laughs> It's not telling the truth. Uh, it was a, it was an utter thrill, and I felt so, I felt so proud to win it for sure. I should say also that you know the the, the Ivan Novellos is one that is voted for by other songwriters, so it was it was voted for by my peers, um, and it, it, in that sense, I think it meant even more to know the kind of people that would be listening to my song, and also really kind of you know reacting to it and listening to the every scrap of effort you put into writing a song like the age of anxiety being listened to by people that also write songs and uh, knowing for knowing that it was voted for by similar kind of nerds 
about songwriting was 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 really felt very special and it it's given me a lot of inspiration to keep going actually which is um I'm, yeah it was an amazing thing to happen this year well it's, it is a special award i think and i know that people who win it generally it means i'm not saying it means more to them but it, it's it's definitely special to songwriters to receive that award anyway congratulations but on that note i wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your songwriting I followed your career really since since the beginning and really your first, I'd say, three albums, you were establishing yourself as really a great interpreter of songs, which is really a bit of a lost art, I think. But really, I think maybe after Catching Tales, there definitely seemed to be a very deliberate move to establishing yourself as a more classic singer-songwriter, which I think has developed over the years. And I think certainly on Taller... I'm not saying it's his peak, hopefully it won't, but certainly it's went up a level. And do you think that's a fair description of, of your career? It really is. And I, I had to slightly revisit that thought uh, a couple of days ago in another interview. And it really got me thinking about it because I, after 20-something was so popular, um, Catching Tales was, was a slight reaction to that uh, in the sense that it was very important to me you know, it's that classic thing when, you, when you're younger where it was important to me that people thought I was X, Y, Z. And it was really important to me that um, I, I almost forgot how difficult it is to interpret a song and do it well. Because you're right, it is a bit of a, a lost art form. And I think I was like, no, I need to be taken seriously as a songwriter. This is really mm. important. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, it, it's not important what anyone thinks about it. It's important what you do and important that you do it with authenticity and I think it took me a while to come around to that but I feel that I have matured to a point as a songwriter where I was able to write a song like The Age of Anxiety which is purely about the song and not not about um uh making sure I, I, people know that I'm a songwriter if you right, know what I mean. right right uh, I see and I think it's it, it's not it's 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 it, for that reason for The Age of Anxiety to be the song that got an Ivan Novello it, it, it feels it feels really important because actually it was it was a song that was written purely for the joy of writing a song and wanting to express myself. Um, but th that's not to say within that, you know, within that kind of journey, um, you know, the songs weren't authentic, but I think it does, it does take a long time to really not care about what people think and just kind of get on with the art of writing songs and uh, also to enjoy just interpreting other songs. I have this series on YouTube called The Song Society where I challenge myself to cover something in an hour. Um, and that is, is covering at its most um, pure as well, because, you know, covering songs and, and using other people's songs as a jumping off point is a real part of what jazz is all about as well. Y using it as an expression for your own personality and your, your own sense of improvisation. I love doing that too. So bringing them all together in a, in a way that doesn't feel loaded is, is, is a real pleasure and something I feel like I'm able to do now side by side without having everything having to be so loaded. I've listened to the Song Society songs. Like, I, you did the Weekend track, I think, and River by Joni, yeah. beautiful, a beautiful version of River by Joni Mitchell. Um, but was that different from doing Interlude, which was also a covers album, which actually contains one of my favourite ever Randy Newman covers, by the way. Oh, lovely. Well thank done. you. Um, <laughs> Unbelievable. Thank you so much. Losing you. Yeah, losing it's, you. It's, well, it's an incredible song. I mean, really, all you have to do is, is, is play that one down and you're onto a winner because it's just one of the great songs of all time. Um, yeah. Interlude, interlude for me was um, as much a collaboration as it was a kind of album of covers or jazz covers or whatever you want to call it. That was, you know, for, for me, an opportunity to collaborate with a, a really talented bunch of people, Nostalgia 77, Ben Lambdin, uh, Rian Vosloo, uh, Ross Stanley, 
uh, that that felt like a real collaboration album in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um that was a direct result of um of being on the radio and presenting my own show and getting to meet people that i just thought were uber talented so mm-hmm. yeah that that was a that was that was how i kind of figured that album to to kind of fit into everything and the song society is man it, 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 now it feels like an excuse to kind of get together with some friends and have a laugh for a day <laughs> have a good bit of lunch and just get together and, and and make some music in a kind of an unpressured way and just you know like covering kind of modern pop songs uh you know things like the weekend it feels quite cheeky and fun it, it's not supposed to be like a kind of exercise in trying to go viral it's it's literally like well you know when it comes to doing a weekend song or a mark ronson song or a, i can't even remember the other ones we've done off the top of my head but also getting inside a song like Brick by Ben Folds Five and inside a song like River or, or, or Boniver's Hey Ma, that's also an opportunity for me to learn what makes these songs great as well and put ourselves under the pressure of trying to do something in an hour as well. It's, 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 a, it's a great opportunity to learn something, yeah. She told me don't worry about it. She told me don't worry no more. So we're going back in time and I want to ask you the first show that really meant something to you in a, in a profound way. One of the first jazz concerts I saw was, um, uh, I mean, in some ways, what an introduction to jazz it was, but it certainly certainly was unusual. I went, there was not a lot of live jazz around where I lived, but uh, Bath was about 28 miles away from where I lived. And they used to have, well, they still have the, the, the music festival there, but they had a pretty left field jazz festival there. I went to see John Taylor and John Sermon do a duo gig of an album called Ambleside Days, which was really out there kind of contemporary European jazz kind of thing, which I remember absolutely loving. I also went to see, I went to the Phoenix uh, Festival up in Stratford, uh, uh, which was, you know, the, the, the lineup the year I went first went when I was 15 was um, Bjork, the Chemical Brothers, James Brown, Beck, David Bowie, um, Jamiroquai, Dr. John, Weldon Irvin, uh, Wow. I mean, it was an incredible mixture of people that, I mean, when I say it changed my life, I mean, Orbital, I saw, uh, it was just unbelievable. Black Grape. Um, I saw all these bands in uh, over a period of of one weekend and just, just blew my mind. The possibility of live music of those, those kind of artists from the heritage level to a kind of more modern pop level. Uh, Yeah, that, that was a, that was a mind blower of a weekend. So that was that as a future performer and artist, they were the seeds effectively of of you choosing that path, or do you think you'd already chosen that path? No, I definitely not chosen that path at all. I, I had no no concept of being an artist. That say so I was just a teenager and in, in, a, a teenage fan of music, um, going to see music with my friends, you know. And actually, what was interesting that weekend was that you know that was a kind of you know, if you consider yourself a teenager away from your parents camping, you know, I was with my first girlfriend at the time. It was, it was super fun in that sense. But I did find myself breaking up a lot from my friendship group and going to see 
these kind of slightly weirder, more jazz related things that, uh, you know, acid jazz was becoming big at that time. So there's a lot of acid jazz there that weekend, Incognito, Cordroy, um, uh, Galliano, um, you know, Tribe Called Quest were there that weekend as well. So I was taking myself off to see that stuff and breaking away from my friends as well to, to see. So I was clearly kind of going down my own path as well. Uh, but it certainly wasn't in service to being an artist at that point. It was just in service to the kind of God of like listening to music. So I want to move on to Taller, your album from last year, which I think was well, for me anyway, it was a really huge step lyrically for you. Mm, um, thank you. It's a very reflective and self-questioning and in parts very vulnerable record, I think. Mm. Like Joni Mitchell vulnerable. Mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, and um, it's one of those records that, I mean, many artists in the late 30s and 40s, not many, but a few will make sort of meditation on lives and hopes, losses and, you know, the general human condition. Did, did you feel in any way uncomfortable about revealing that part of your inner life firstly while writing it and then before releasing it yeah ab absolutely i did yes for sure um yeah it's it's quite a it's quite a bruised record and in a in a way that i'm 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 very proud of i i think i probably grew up in the era just before it was okay for men to start revealing more of their vulnerabilities i think now it's it's much more something that we talk about you know men talking about anxiety and their worries and their vulnerabilities. And, you know, I think when I was, you know, I'm 41 now. So when I was growing up, it was, you know, people were still using phrases like man up or you're being gay or stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we were still in that kind of era where it, it was still, you know, and rightly so, as we think of as very kind of backward now, which is, you know, it, it is one of the great things about this era is that now, I certainly noticed my male friends talking more about like, oh God, this is making me really worried. And, you know, talking about realizing that externalizing your emotions is, is much more, is much healthier and better for everyone, you mm. know? Um, so I'm also in a relationship where I'm very much encouraged to do that as well. Uh, so, you know, that was very much the background to writing the album Taller. Um, you know, I have an amazing part of my, my wife is an amazing woman who is, is someone who's really challenged me to be a lot more open and I think it's no surprise it ended up in my music I, I think for me the the worry was making sure that I was present, presenting it as an authentic authentic way that was um was authentic and kind of honorable to that journey because I didn't want it to seem like you know I didn't want it to be like a diary album or like some kind of oh he's finally talking about his feelings or or you know mining a, a difficult period of my personal life to sell it, it, i just wanted it to be an honest expression and, and and honor that journey so um the fact that it came over and it resonated with people and you know whilst you wouldn't call it like a a, a a hit album that was number one all over the world i think it has really resonated with the people that heard it and really really took some of those kind of themes to heart and um that 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 makes it feel like a major success to me Interesting. I asked another artist this question, but on that note, do you feel that there's sometimes the spirit and context in which you create music is received by the public in that same spirit and context? I mean, it doesn't always work that way. Um, and also, I think that something I've really realised is that it can take time to resonate in the way 
you would like it to resonate. And then other times it resonates in a way you totally didn't expect. And they're all, they're all good. You know, God, if I think about the way my song, All at Sea, that I wrote at 20 years old, still resonates with people now. And like fully fledged grown-ups, the way it resonates with people. And, you know, that's a surprise to me. And I think that's the great thing about songs is that they're kind of, they're kind of soothsayers in a way. They, 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 they predict things and they, they point out things that sometimes the writer doesn't know at the time themselves. It's a bit, a bit like when you read a book at 18 years old and when you read it at, at 48, it can mean a totally different thing. And I think so songs are really good at living out there on their own. You kind of, you, you know, I, I, you, real danger of it all being quite pretentious, but you do kind of birth them and then they kind of go out there and they, they ideally they kind of do their own thing in their own time. And you can't always predict that as the, as the person who's written it. And I think that's the, the, that's the thing that keeps keeps me coming back to songs in a, in a lot of ways of write, writing them is because of that little kind of spiritual power that they can have. So what's your what's your next show? Well, um, there was uh, I saw that same summer. I think I saw two shows at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Bear in mind, I didn't live anywhere near London growing up. So it was a big deal for me to somehow get into London. Um, and I, I must have been about 15 or 16. I went into London to see. Harry Connick Jr. play at the Shepherd's Bush Empire doing his New Orleans funk stuff, um, which had been roundly criticized by the people that had fallen in love with his When Harry Met Sally big band era. And Ben Folds Five, also at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, um, both of which were like, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even describe how I felt after. Both those shows, I, I went back to the, the village I lived near Swindon. Um, I, both of them kind of put me in a state of slight, like a come down, I guess, like a depression. Um, I felt like I'd seen something so magical and so, um, so otherworldly, such a level of talent and, and force that I, I didn't quite know what to do with myself after. I just, I wanted, I, I guess it's a bit like a, 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 like a drug addict wanting to, to maintain that feeling. I was on such a high watching those shows that when they were over, I, I, I almost felt depressed. And that depression, did it also manifest itself because you felt, how, how can I achieve this? Or how can I, you know, that element. I, had a, I was talking to an artist recently, you know, quite a successful artist who went to see Prince 10 years ago and left completely depressed because yeah, well, they felt I had that exact completely, same yeah. experience watching Prince 10 years ago as well, right. actually, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it has been, I think, in those days when I was like 15, um, I've got to say, I had a similar experience watching The Wedding Present that same year, which is a totally different genre of music. I went to see them in Bristol. Um, I think whilst I didn't know, I wasn't saying out loud that I wanted to be an artist, I think instinctively within me, I hadn't, I wasn't yet able to express the fact that I wanted to do that for a living um, or that I wanted, I wanted it to be a major part of my life. So I probably was watching it thinking, how am I ever going to reach the intensity and the the artistic integrity that these people are reaching for and it was touching me on a very deep level but also I was it was a sense of enjoyment that I just wanted to feel I wanted to feel that all the time as well and I was I was really you know many people get some people were getting it through sport at that age some people were getting it through whatever they were getting it through you know for me it was definitely getting it through live music that's that was my that was my jam at that stage you know festivals and going to gigs and stuff and I couldn't afford to go to loads of them but I was going to the ones I could go to. And when I did, if it was giving me that medicine, then 
man, I just, I just, I just wanted more and more. And, you know, as an artist, I guess the seed was growing in my head that maybe I could be an artist too. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your breakthrough with going back a bit with 20-something. Um, obviously, you'd had some success with Pointless Nostalgic, but I think people forget how huge 20-something was. It was such a massive, massive record. And you went from playing Pizza Express in 2013 to playing Wembley Arena in 2014, mm. which I think is, you know, quite a significant jump. Could, could you tell us a little bit about that period and also that change from playing you know a small club with a jazz band to playing a cavernous arena and the challenges of that well um i think uh you know if i if i could if i could just reframe the the question slightly um you know when i when i was performing at wembley arena it was it was part of like one of those kind of all-star kind of nights and stuff like that i think but nonetheless i was still you know playing the royal festival hall the royal albert hall you know big big venues uh, you know things like the festival in front of a lot of people so yeah there, there was still there was still that a big jump um you know i don't think i've ever kind of gone into an, an, an arena yet and kind of played that under my own steam but at the same time there was a huge jump and it was a big shift yeah um i think i think because my my goal as a as an artist has always been to kind of prize the music above everything else um you know i was still surrounded by you know whilst i was playing these bigger shows i was still playing with the same uh musicians that i that i i'd always played with and um that felt like a you know it felt like a it felt like we'd smuggled this kind of thing into these these big these big halls and i i think i was at the right age because i was just kind of going along for the ride and whilst i was not like an uber confident musician like i wasn't kind of going out there i was quite always quite aware of my limitations as a musician something I would speak about in the earliest interviews I can find in myself. I was like, I know I'm not like the best piano player in the world. You know, I knew some of the best piano players, young piano players in the world. I, you know, I'd seen people like Gwilym Simcock play piano at the age of 18. I, I, I knew all the great musicians. I was playing with people like Ben Castle and, you know, all these other musicians I knew. Um, so I knew how good you could be. And I knew that whilst I didn't bring this kind of level of technique to the table, I knew through playing, doing my 10,000 hours and playing hundreds and hundreds of gigs beforehand, I knew I was bringing something a little bit different to the table. I knew I had some good experience behind the mic and on stage and I knew to have to get a crowd going. So I had a sense of confidence in that sense. So as it was going up size, you know, the venues were growing and there was quite a shift and 20 was becoming this big success. It did feel slightly out of proportion, but by the time I was walking onto the stage and by the time we'd started the first number, I was like, yeah, I got this. I know, I know how to do this bit. So I'm really glad that it wasn't, you know, I think Pop Idol and, and X Factor and was starting to kind of become a thing in those days. And I would see people literally going from their bedrooms to going from Wembley Arena. And I would say to myself, thank God that didn't happen to me because actually I had 10, 15 years of like playing in empty pubs and playing in rooms where people would were pissed and throwing bottles at you and, and like just demanding like you play a cover off the top of your head of Robbie Williams's Angels. I I had all those experiences. <laughs> I'd been on tour with like 
a rock band and a pop band and I sung in a James Brown covers band and I'd done a thousand weddings I'd done a thousand funerals and I'd done this function that function I'd you know played guitar in one band I played Hammond organ in another band so I had a lot of um there was quite a texture to my experience as a musician that had was a was a background to that which gave me some tools to deal with the madness um plus when I was being invited to things that I guess you would you would call like the celebrity kind of trappings of things I generally wasn't I'm not trying to paint myself as some kind of high and mighty type but I generally was more interested in going to the party where the band was going to be or the musicians were going to be so I managed to kind of stay away from all that kind of fluffier stuff and kind of stay hanging out with the with the people that were, were probably my natural tribe anyway. So we're going again back in time and what's your next uh, show or concert or festival? Probably a Ronnie Size. Ronnie Size represent gig in Bristol probably around the 17, 18, 19 mark around there. Um, that feels like a really like a really big moment. I think kind of discovering discovering the dance floor. Um, you know, I, I growing up around that kind of West Country area, that 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 area there there are a lot of raves that I I would have gone to. Um and I did love kind of electronic music and I loved kind of, you know, techno and house music, but I think that kind of discovery of being on the dance floor for for six, seven, eight hours um, with DJ after DJ and then a, a band that came on that had a real live element to it as well. I, I remember that being a real game changer for me and just, you know, finding some kind of spiritual awakening, like through just the act of feeling your legs kind of moving for, for that amount of time with amazing music that was very soulful, that had a beat that I really could kind of tune into. I think kind of prior to that, it would always be, it always felt like something, you know, by the time I was at the age where I could actually go to those kind of things legally. Um, and I did, and I went with friends and, you know, I wasn't really in like the, I wasn't really into the, in the drug taking gang. Um, it just kind of, by, by, it kind of bypassed me really. Cause I was also young looking. So I, I never really kind of was going to nightclubs kind of really young because I just I just couldn't I always looked so young but by the time I could go out to those kind of things I was so tuned into the music and so tuned into what DJs were doing and stuff I I just I would really lose myself with my friends on the dance which is just a, a, a beautiful thing and that that definitely happened at a, a Ronnie size represent night in, in in Bristol and I think that music was really coming up in, in Bristol during that time so it felt very powerful it felt very loaded with the with a, a sense of power of it being a kind of cultural, cultural, mo you know, looking back on it, it, it was a real cultural moment, you know, that kind of went it out was. into the world. And, um, you know, to be partly there while it was happening was, um, was, a, was, a, was a kind of existential thrill, you know. So going, going back a little bit after 20-something, obviously catching, you've alluded to this earlier, so I'm sorry if I'm going back on myself, but um, when I first heard Get Your Way, I remember hearing it on the radio, I said, this is not going to be 20-something part two. 
So obviously that, as you said earlier, that was a deliberate move away from 20-something and what you felt that represented. How did, how did the people around you react? I'm talking about your label or management. or how, What was that like? Because obviously you'd made it with Dan, the automator, yeah, right? Yeah. Who'd obviously he'd worked with Primal Scream and um, Gorillaz. What was that like? Because obviously you'd made a deliberate decision about where you wanted to go. So tell me a little bit about that period. It was it was it was it was semi deliberate. I mean, what you know, what I remember very clearly around that time, twenty something came out that there were a, a handful of people doing the kind of jazz thing that had a retro flavour. And obviously Michael Bublé was was very much one of them, and um, he was very much someone I would see around, and we would do similar kind of things, and um, you know, we occasionally have coffee together and stuff like that, and. Um, there was a, there was a time there where we were very much like at a similar kind of level, I guess, kind of commercially. And um, you know, I definitely had a decision after twenty something that I could continue doing the same kind of thing, which just you know, which felt felt wrong. And then there was people, oh, you don't want to kind of make a, a second album that is uh, um, you know too kind of different because you alienate all your original fans and then all you'll do is want to come back around to the same thing you did, you know, because you've lost all your fans, you want them back. And I watched obviously, you know, Michael do something very consistent with what his fans were expecting and doing it fantastically well, you know, and then I went off and did something that was not a total left turn, but very much a conscious decision to not do the same kind of thing. And in some ways I probably saw that kind of very uh, uh, clear fan base who were like, I know what I'm going to get kind of go oh well this isn't quite what I want so I'm going to stick with the album that I love and watch my career kind of take a different different turn but um I feel I, if I now look back at all the other things I've done I see it was obviously precisely the right thing for me to do because the things that really give me pleasure are that kind of you know I, I met Dan the Automator through doing doing the front end cover with Pharrell um I, I sorry I didn't do it with Pharrell but obviously I did a cover of front end Pharrell's front end and that kicked me into a whole other area which felt really natural to me but introduced me to all these other people and I was with Pharrell in South by Southwest uh, Festival singing front fronting with him and NERD and he introduced me to Dan the Automator he said you guys should work together I'm like <laughs> you know I knew okay. um, I knew Dan the Automator through um, not really through Gorillaz but through his stuff he'd done with Del the Funky Homo Sapien uh, Deltron 2020 which is where Damon Albarn also heard Dan stuff. So, um, you know, going down those avenues are my, I guess they're my kind of music nerd avenues that are just totally, that is who, that is who I am. So um, whilst, yes, th th you know, the record label, God bless them, they were like, this is not quite what we wanted, but they didn't know 20 something is what they wanted. So you know, I'm exactly where I want to be in the sense that I didn't know where I wanted to be. I just knew I wanted to follow my nose. And I, you know, I, I, I love that album and many people love that album. And whilst it didn't kind of kick me into kind of playing Wembley Stadium, um, it has made, you know, there, there are aspects of that album that really connected with people in different parts of the world in different ways. And um, it is, you know, I guess I, I, I probably followed the artist journeyman musician pathway more than more than anything else and uh if i look back on that as a 41 year old man it feels like exactly what i was supposed to do but at the time i guess you could have seen it as a as meaning i was less successful after 20 something but 
you know these are all you know life isn't like that really um, <laughs> I, I meant it less about whether it was less successful or not but more for me it's just an interesting decision to make you know i think it's because you there, there are these paths that you take as an artist yeah. and many artists who really want long-term careers they tend to take that fork in the road so they don't make 20 something too or they they tend not to of course there are exceptions like michael bubley as you were saying but mm. just you know being a sort of student student of these things people who tend to have the really long careers tend to be those people i think, I think. that uh, it wasn't it probably wasn't as conscious as a decision as uh, as i'm going mm. back to it but i just remember thinking that um i was a bit i was at the time i was i was a bit bored with the idea of just doing kind of standards uh and i wanted to choose great standards to do and do them really well but really i think at that point my my urge was to write and to to collaborate with people that would challenge me to do something you know with down the automated you know i i grew up loving tribe called quest um and the idea of sampling jazz to make a new jazz type of song seemed to me like well that's exactly what i should be doing because that's what i've been obsessed with mm. since like 12 years old so i guess it was instinctive in a way um uh, and not intentionally an idea of like, well, this is the kind of artist I want to be. I don't think I was ever that, kind of, I, I was much more guileless than that. I I never had a sense of what my long-term career would be. I was just like, I wanted to make stuff that would enable me to keep doing it. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, that was just kind of following my nose and scratching my own itches. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to jazz and people who work in jazz, because obviously you are you were, you were a jazz artist, you're still a jazz artist, but as we discussed earlier, you seem to have morphed more into more the more classic singer-songwriter territory who's not really informed or entrenched in any particular genre. C could you talk a little bit about, about your, because obviously you've got your radio show, which I'll come on to in a second, which is a very important and influential show. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with the, when I say jazz community, I mean it in the loosest sense of the word. Um. Yeah, I, I, I hope it's a strong bond, really. Um, I think where I, where I questioned it for a while was that uh, I always felt a bit uh, um, uneasy with the fact that I'd be called like the best-selling British jazz artist of all time because my music's always had such a strong connection to pop music that in some ways it's like, well, it's not fair to compare it to, you know, Django Bates or... <laughs> Or, um, yeah, I, John, or John, John Sermon. Sermon. Exactly. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not like, it's not like they just haven't, it's not like, well, my record's more successful than them. It's like, you know, that they're, they're making deeply reflective, um, you know, non-commercial music. And, you know, I was consciously kind of mixing up the things that I loved because, because I loved it and it sounded good to me. And um, I'm aware that my understanding of voicings and improvisation is, you know, was 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 never up to the you know improvisational level of a I don't know Dave Newton or Julian Joseph or whatever the the people that were you know really just the, the British jazz musicians around at that time that were putting out records that I love Jason Rebello you know she Jason Rebello of course got a big recording contract around that time and made some really big records but um, I uh, I think I ended up collaborating and working with so many of those musicians and. I, I think I think I just developed some some respect within that community because I could I could play I, I can I can play pretty well and uh, I was always very conscious of um, of celebrating the musicians within within the British jazz community and that's something obviously I've I've really tried to continue to do within 
the radio show on, on BBC Radio 2, not because I feel a duty for it because of how successful I've been, but because I love, it's just part of my DNA. I love celebrating, I, I'm a music nerd. You know, I, I became a musician because I was a fan um, as much as anything else. And so, you know, I remember some of those early interviews that the, the PR person would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, don't forget to, you, you need to be promoting your own album as well. And I'd be talking about, you know, Django Bates is uh, a version of New York, New York, and the fact that the Strokes have got a new album out and stuff. So don't forget to mention your new album, you know. So it is a natural extension of my music nerdiness personality. And do you think you did that because, because you were coming from a genre where a lot of those artists don't get enough exposure effectively. Yes, I think there's that. And I think yeah. also I just was like, man, if you heard this, you were going to love it. You know, you're not mm -hmm. going to hear about this in the magazine that I'm being interviewed in. So I remember seeing Harry Connick Jr. being interviewed by like Annika Rice or someone like when I was like 10, 10. And he, he was talking on, on like British morning TV, but way before the internet, he was talking about James Booker, Dr. John, and uh, you know, some really like out there stuff. I was like, I just felt like he'd smuggled these like grenades into into like breakfast, you know, daytime television. I just, I love, I love that like that subversion of, of bringing that in, and that I think that's something I've always held on to as well. You know, if I, if I if I can end up talking about John Sermon and and <laughs> John Taylor's humble <laughs> side days on, and believe me, I have. You know, on on, on loose women. You uh -huh. know, it's like it. It's a it's a it's a win for the for the culture, but it's ultimately just a win for for great music, you know. Sorry, I'm just trying to visualise what you discussing John Sermon and Loose Women would be like with everybody sort of slightly puzzled, puzzled looks, but trying to please you, going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and is there any of your contemporaries? This is another way of asking you about your important or favourite shows that you've seen live that you're really impressed by. You know, uh, some somebody that you think. You know whether they're they get the respect or they don't get the respect or get the sales or don't get the sales. But is there anyone in particular that really impresses you and that you're moved by when you see them? Oh God, I mean, so so many. I mean, the, when you say my contemporaries, I mean, do you mean just anyone kind of out there playing now, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last twenty, thirty years. I mean, anyone. It could be you know people who yeah. are still performing. You know. Well, I mean, it, it, there there are literally too many to mention, but I'll, I'll you know, I remember seeing Michael Kiwanuka early on and just thinking that what a, what an excessive excessive amount of poise and talent he had. Mm. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, Moses Boyd putting his band together and just, you know, loving the mixture of the kind of, you know, modern jazz, classic jazz with kind of electronic sounds and a, a real sense of, you know, contemporaneous Tom, Tom Mish and his band. Uh, exceptional Jordan Rakai, Bruno Major, uh, you know, anything, anytime Shabaka Hutchins steps in front of a mic with whichever band he's with. Um, Pete Wareham, all Pete Wareham's projects, Seb Rochford's projects. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, I saw Sarah Tandy, the piano player, do a, a solo piano performance, which just totally blew my mind. Um, you know, Coco Roco, Sheila Maurice Gray, uh, Shirley Tetsu. So all the all the, the all that contemporary, yeah. the contemporary London artists are have impressed you. Then I'm I'm impressed by them because, you know, I'm impressed by them because, first of all, they're all they're all great. There's no there's no kind of weak link in the musician chain there, right? There's no that 
what's really interesting about this new scene is that that the level of musicianship is so high it ceases to be it ceases to be a surprise how well everyone plays so that so there's that you can kind of get that out of the way and then actually you have this feeling where no one is playing to the the gods of the past whilst of course they are and they're all aware of their influences they're aware of how important people like Gary Crosby have been and the people that kind of set the stage I think they are bringing a sense of con contemporaryness to you know I went to the steam down night and it just doesn't fit there's nothing about it that feels that it doesn't it totally belongs in the time that we live in now um, and feels like it deserves to to exist now in a totally contem contemporary way which feels exciting and feels like a vision for the future and it also feels very british that's the other thing it feels british yeah. it doesn't feel like it's aping the americans it doesn't feel like kamazi washington it doesn't feel like robert glasper it feels like this country and you know that's not to make it london centric i've seen amazing stuff up in manchester and leeds and what matthew Halsall's doing up up there and what sweater kinch has been doing up for years in birmingham the, the scottish jazz scene up there i mean this country seems to have created a uh, a holding place for jazz that feels uniquely itself and feels like it is influencing the rest of the world and I think the rest of the world could learn a lot from the way we are dealing with jazz right now. So that's actually a nice segue into my next question which is about your, your Radio 2 show because that's become a very important showcase for many artists and you're helping to break those artists so a lot of those artists that you're talking about are artists that you've helped break through your show, you know, whether it's artists like, you know, Emma Jean Thackeray or Sarah Tandy, all the way through to someone like Gregory Porter, who I think you supported quite early on in your show. And I, I've li I listened to your show quite a lot and you seem to have a huge freedom of what you want to play. And I was going to ask, how, how does it feel to wield that sort of influence? Because that, that, that genre of music, it's tough, you know, as you know, commercially, it's tough for a lot of those artists, notwithstanding that, there's been a renaissance. So your, you know, approbation or blessing is hugely important. What's that like for you to have, you know, because it definitely feels to me that you do wield some form of influence. Goodness, well, I mean, it's it's not, it's not nothing but a pleasure, really. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I try to make sure that I'm really listening to everything I can listen to. You know, it's, it's hard to, of course, and you do miss things. And I have an amazing producer, Karen uh, uh, Pearson, who used to work with Giles Peterson and you know really I think anyone who presents jazz in a contemporary context uh, is standing on the shoulders of the giant that is Giles Peterson you know he, he's brought for his entire career he's he he's 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 the god that we all pay homage to you know he's he's had as much influence on the contemporary scene that we we live in now uh, that of, of anyone of any musician and I, I you know I admire him as much as 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 any great musician, I think he, I really truly think he's an absolute national, international treasure, really. Um, so I think I'd, I'd, I'd try to treat it as if I tried to, I think having, I think the word power is a bit, um, it's a bit, makes me feel a bit uncomfortable because really I just try to approach it as a fan. And I think if I have any kind of gift of speaking on the radio, it, it it's a gift of um, being able to communicate my enthusiasm for something and convincing people to listen to something that they may not have given a chance through my kind of passion and enthusiasm you know I, I think I know how to set up a track uh and say look this is going to be totally outside of a lot of people's comfort zone but here's why you might get something out of it and mm. you know it it worked and it's it, it I go circle back to the beginning of this there's nothing but it's nothing but a pleasure it's just 
it's just a joy. It's not. It's not a job, you know. No, I, I guess I meant. I, I didn't mean sort of. I guess influence more than, more mm. than power. But and what does it? What does it feel like then when somebody really breaks? From like I was. You know, obviously Gregory broke pretty big. Yeah. And you were one of the first supporters. Is that a strange feeling for you? Yeah, it's a great. It's a great. It's a great feeling. I mean, with someone like Gregory, I think. You know, when I heard his voice, you know, I've had this conversation with Robert Elms as well, who's one of the first people to play him as well. It's just like you hear a voice like that. It's it's pretty obvious that unless something goes very wrong, that someone like that is going to make a make a, a huge impact on the world. So but yeah, to, to be one of the first people to play him felt really great. And, you know, hearing from musicians who said, you know, what, my my two gigs ago, I was playing to four people, you know, um, after you announced the gig on the radio and played my song, I sold out Ronnie's and. You know, a lot of people came out and said, I heard you on Jamie's show. And um, yeah, that's an immense, I, 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 I'm, I'm so, I'm very, very proud of that. I'm, but I'm also proud, uh, you know, I have to pay homage to Radio 2. It's, it, Radio 2 is the, is the biggest commercial pop radio station in Europe. And for an hour a week, I have an opportunity to play an interview, Emma Jean Thackeray. <laughs> And, and, you know, yeah. uh, and Nabaya Garcia and John, occasionally yeah. John Sermon and John Taylor. And, um, yeah, again, it's like it's the smuggling those grenades into, into uh, Anne Diamond on TVAM in the 80s, isn't it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we go on to our last question, um, what's your final show? Uh, Tom Waits uh, in Paris. Um, yeah, Tom Waits in Paris, probably, I'm just trying to think how long it would go, uh, probably 11 or 12 years ago. And, well, first of all, it was one of the greatest shows of my life. He's probably my, my desert island artist. It was, uh, it was a night of storytelling and poetry, musicianship, humour, sadness. Um, and it was also the night that my grandmother died as well. She, she, she died while I was watching that concert. And when I, I, it was so weird because I, I'd left my, I'd left my phone um, by accident behind in the hotel room. And I think I may have got the call that she had died um, right before I walked into the show. And I obviously wouldn't have gone and seen that show. Um, and it just, it, it feels like a big moment that night for, for, all, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and yeah. I feel like the joy I got from that night, which I've, I've, I've and the inspiration and the, the the impetus to keep going as a musician and as a creative person was 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 driven a lot by that night seeing Tom Waits perform in in the Olympia in Paris, and um, I just felt like a lot of things kind of fell into place, and I feel like my 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 dear departed grandmother knew knew what she was doing that night, you know. On a hot night, with a broken shoe, little black girl, you should have never left home. God bless someone when for you. Was called back in Chicago, on Los Angeles Street, it's worse. All you got is twenty. Well, Jamie, thank you very, very much. That was great. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Before we go, let's hear from some of Jamie's fans about how his live music has impacted them. We thought Christmas was going to be a sullen affair without our families. And the best news possible was 
that something amazing was going to happen. Jamie Cullen came and sang live to the staff and the residents here at our residential home White Plains in Denham. He did wave to me and I waved back to him and blowed him a kiss. And <laughs> <laughs> I think he did, did likewise, I'm not sure. <laughs> I can't, even, I can't even describe how amazing it was. Everybody was adrenalised, everybody was upbeat. He was everything. He was well, my biggest body and... He was jiving. He was... He's charming. It was... It was the best Christmas present. That was the words the residents even said. That was the best Christmas present they could have even hoped for. First of December, and here come the songs. I look at you and think, what could go wrong? Cause it's Christmas. My name is Flory, and I am a singer and a songwriter. And I was a big Jamie Cullen fan. I am a big Jamie Cullen fan, but he had a big impact on me as a musician and a writer when I was growing up and I went to a lot of his shows. The first time I saw him was at the Colston Hall in Bristol, which is where I grew up. And I think it was just his stage presence and his musicality. Um, and he was so warm and personable. And I think later on, when I started to release music as an artist myself, I really thought back to those moments of seeing him play live when I was kind of crafting my own live show, because I think his energy is amazing. And I remember one moment where I can't remember what song it was in, but he stood on top of the piano and there's a moment where kind of the band stop and then he jumps off. And I just felt the kind of energy in the room of, of the audience just lift. And that's something I definitely aspired to kind of create when I was putting together my own live shows. If you have a story about a pivotal live performance in your life, do get in touch by emailing podcast at lovesupremefestival.com and you may be featured in an upcoming episode. That brings us to the end of this episode. Before you go, please leave us a rating and review as that helps other people discover the show and follow or subscribe so you get the next episode when it lands. In the meantime, check out lovesupremefestival.com. Tickets are on sale now and follow us at Love Supreme Fest for news and updates from our community. Music